We've gone through Mark, and one of the images I sort of feel that come to my mind is the disciples when they're called. It's a big thing that they got called. They come and follow. But they came, and I'm sure it was exciting at first. You know, it's sort of like those of you who are Christians in this room, it's cool if you're not, but if you're not, you're a Christian. At first, it's like most often it was like this exciting thing. Life, life is transformed. It's sort of a new ride. It's sort of almost like getting um, a new toy at Christmas, if you would. But when they continued to journey with Jesus, they saw really good things happen, and they began to see really bad things happen. And Jesus said that there will be suffering in this life. He said that you're to take up, we're called to take up our cross and follow him. So suffering is a part of being a Christian. And I don't think the disciples got it. I think like many Christians in our society, they think it is a cool little country club to be a part of. Come and attend and, and have some good friendships, maybe develop some business things and leave and, and sort of do your life and come back. And what happened with the disciples was not that. They came and they went to uh, pray with Jesus in the garden and they fell asleep. And Jesus asked for the, the uh, cup to be passed from him. And you, and you really have to understand the, the Passover and the Seder and, and to tie all this together. The cup which Jesus was to take and to drink was a difficult cup. And he knew what it was going to mean. And yet he took it. But the disciples slept. And then the disciples fled a little bit, things don't go their way, and they flee. And they run away, and they scatter. You ever scattered because of Jesus? You ever been embarrassed to be associated with him? You know, I, I think if we're honest, there are in all points, there's ways that we each have felt that way. It might not be to the greatest level, but it might be a slightest bit to where we have placed ourselves as outsiders to what Jesus has done. And we formed our lines. And so you even see at the cross, the disciples sort of fled. Uh, there's a couple ladies there. There's a centurion at the cross. And where we left it off last week is he's staring up at the cross. And the cross, again, it is a, bu a brutal, beautiful symbol. Told you a phrase you're going to keep hearing from me. Grace is a beautiful word, but it is ugly up close. The cross is beautiful from a distance, but if you know what took part and you believe what took part, the closer you get into to it, it was brutal. And so most likely, Jesus was naked on that cross, had been beaten brutally, had a crown of thorns. He was inaugurated as king. A sign on the cross said, King of the Jews, here he is. He had been spit upon. He had had his beard pulled. And at the same time, he looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. And I think that that was that centurion sitting there, and he looked up at the cross. And if you take from last week, if you weren't here, we had one principle I asked some people to remember that Jesus is the temple. He is the personification of everything. He was the one who in th- the temple would be destroyed and in three days that it would be built back up. And the centurion was look as Jesus' body was rent apart and he looked up there and said, surely this is the son of God. At that moment, he was not an outsider. He was not a fringe. He was the first person to acknowledge the Son of God there. It was dark. It was brutal. But there were outsiders, too. There were outsiders that took place. And one of the ways I thought that I was an outsider, I've told this story once before here, is that when I was a kid... My dad uh, became friends with this man. His name was William Hill. And William Hill had suffered from a lot of uh, disabilitating, from birth even, injuries and and just uh, things that came where he could barely walk. He was super short. He was like in my eyes, you know, kids, I know what it's like now. And I know when you're going to, some of y'all say it to me already, he's like, you're old. You know, and, and back then I'm like, I looked at him and he was old. And he was frail, and he was quiet, and he was somewhat shy and timid. He was just not, not outspoken. And, and in, in a sense, it's almost like I'm going to give the punchline away. It's almost like, I don't remember which Star Wars it is, but remember when Yoda walks in, like really quiet, into like a cave, and he's like barely walking. And, he's, and see, you Star Wars people are going to hate me because I don't know all the things here, but he had to fight somebody. And he's got the cane, right? And he's walking in there. And this is like probably my favorite Star Wars part ever. Yoda gets there, and all of a sudden, the lightsabers light up. And Yoda starts spinning like mad. And he just starts taking people. I mean, he is getting it with that lightsaber. And it's like, that's just, I wanted to be him. And so Mr. Hill, unknowing to me, was like Yoda. Uh-oh. See if that works. It's probably the wire. So I remember, who remembers Bob's big boy? Shoney's, right? They had a big kid out there in front. We walked in to that Bob's big boy with Yoda. I didn't know it yet. People are looking, I'm opening the door. Sit down, people were, I, I, at least I felt like as a kid, people were staring at us, you know, it's like, just, and it's weird things you do when you're kids, and even adults, I know y'all do it too, you have weird thoughts. We drive down to North Carolina, and we go up to a place called, um, I believe it was in Cullowee, might have been, yeah, Western Carolina University, and Mr. Hill was the main speaker. And when I walked in to this big group of people in a large auditorium, 
I walked in with Yoda. People came out of the woodwork to shake this man's hand. Mr. Hill, Reverend Hill, Pastor Hill, you know, all this stuff. And I'm looking as a kid going, what is up? And Mr. Hill, when it's his time to speak, he took his time and walked up on stage. I'm not going to recreate the moment, but I just started from up here. He just walks up real quietly. I'm going to make fun of him. He'll love me for it. I worked for him as a kid. Good evening. Open your Bibles to Colossians. And he began to preach. He just sat right there and he preached. He got loud. And it wasn't the loud like he's obnoxious and trying to make a point. It was just he was passionate about Jesus Christ and passionate about character of Christians. And, and we were talking. I still remember the topic. Like, I still remember what it's talking about, how these things we war with. I walked in with Yoda. Now, if you think about Jesus, they probably initially thought he was going to be Yoda. And that is a bad, if you don't know Star Wars, i got to think of another way to do it. They, you know, they thought he was going to be the king. They thought he was going to be the political fix for uh, Jerusalem and Israel. They was going to take care of all the problems. But then it didn't happen. And then he was his weakest point on the cross. There he, sta- he stood. Today we're going to talk. There's a lot of people we can talk about. We're going to talk about the ladies later. But today we're going to talk about one man, Joseph of Arimathea. So if you have your Bible, please go ahead and turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 15. We're going to be starting in verse 42. There was very little time. Jesus died at approximately 3, I don't want to say p.m., but 3 in the afternoon. Evening was coming. It was a day of preparation, the day that everyone got everything ready for the Passover. Excuse me, the Sabbath. They would get everything ready because they could do no work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus died. The evening had come. Again, it was sometime around 3 Since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, we sang earlier about preparing. I think Pastor Todd mentioned preparing. Prepare, give him room. Joseph of Arimathea was on the council. He was one of the, Sanhe- of the group of the Sanhedrin. He was a man of influence. He was a respected man. He had clout. And all along, he was constant, it seems from what historians said, that he was a part of the council, but he was not part of the group that had Jesus crucified. So he was not in support of that. But he watched it all happen. We don't know where he was, but when Jesus died, he came up and he asked Pilate for the body. 
This was unusual in sense of uh, most of the time the Romans would leave the body on the cross to decay on there to encourage people who had been convicted of heinous acts that they did not want to do that. But Pilate, I think, knowing that there was something different about Jesus, in verse 44 he says, he was surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. Jesus died quickly. They, many think it's because of all the beating that took place, of all the, pre, the, the preparatory stuff before he got on the cross. I would say maybe even that it's because of the weight of the shame and the uh, sinfulness of, of just me on him that it exasperated him so quickly he died on the cross. He was surprised to hear, but he summoned the centurion, and he asked him whether he was already dead. I'm going to assume this is the same centurion. Centurion comes back to Pilate. Yes, he is dead. Not uh, some people have tried to go, not uh, that he took some uh, drug to put him out, not this, whatever. He was dead. They would normally break someone's bones to prove that they were dead, uh, but they didn't do this with Jesus as part of a fulfillment of prophecy that not a bone would be broke on him. But he was dead, and Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph. Mark makes a specific emphasis that Jesus was dead. I mean, some of you probably aren't thinking about this a whole lot, but the world tries to say different things happen. Mark is here to tell you he was gone. He was dead. And 46, and Joseph brought a linen, or bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. We, you're going to get to that later on in this sermon series, but they knew where he was buried. This is sort of your clue that they went and followed to find where Jesus was so they could come later and anoint him. But right now you had Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council, gave his family sight to be buried. It was this hole carved into limestone and they make inside it like a table, almost like a bench seat, and the body would be laid there and a stone would be rolled over it, and they would check periodically on the body just to confirm. Now, like We've heard stories, right, where people wake up in their ca casket before. Have you heard those stories? It's terrifying. It's sort of like if you're a claustrophobic person like I am, that's about the worst thing you can do to me. You know, I'd just rather be taken out. But uh, they would confirm that Jesus was dead. So Joseph took this linen shroud, and he wrapped his body, and he put it in a tomb. In the Jewish culture, it was important to be buried. In Deuteronomy 21, it says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Now, let's fast forward centuries, World War II, when Hitler was killing all the Jewish people. One of the worst things for them, for their people, 
is that they couldn't bury many of their people. And so it was important that Jesus' body was placed in a tomb. Galatians 3, 13 through 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a what? A curse. He took the curse upon him, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So you see the Gentiles, which most of us in this room are, I'm not saying all, but most of us are Gentiles, you had the temple, we, talk, we talked about where you would have the main entrance and then you have the court of the Gentiles and you have the court of the women. Then you would get into the interior part of the temple and then get to the Holy of Holies. Jesus was that temple. He took the curse so that the Gentiles have free entry. All the women have free entry. We are all one in Christ Jesus, neither slave nor free male nor female, all that stuff. We are one in Christ Jesus because of what he did. There's a theological term, it's called imputation. Our sins were put on him, were placed, imputed on him. Oh. They were imputed on him, and there was a substitution that took place. If you think of Abraham, uh, when he took his son, he went to go and put him up there as a sacrifice, and there was a ram in the thorns. Now, I don't know whether this is true or not, and I haven't taken the time to study, but it perplexed me that the ram that was in the thorns, I thought about the thorns on Jesus' crown, that a ram was provided, a lamb was provided, if you would, that... That is what was taking place in the Old Testament. But the sinfulness, our sinfulness, was imputed to Christ Jesus. It was given to him. It was almost as if I took this jacket full of sin, full of all of Eric's stuff, and I draped it over King Jesus. And he took all my shame. He took all my sinfulness. And at the same time, he took off his garment, clean, pure, and put it on me. That is a transaction. That is what imputation takes place. That is substitutionary atonement. Jesus took on our sinfulness so that we could be without separation from God. He was separated, so there is no longer any separation for us. There is no, um, there is no penalty for us to pay. And if you think about the preparation day being Friday, and Jesus was put in the tomb, his body was prepared, there could be no work done on Saturday. So our, our salvation is not based on works. No work done on the Sabbath. Our salvation is not accomplished by works. I would imagine that even if I asked in this room, there would be some if I were to say, well, why do you think that you would go to heaven? And you might say, well, I've been a pretty decent person. And I try to do good, and I try to live by the golden rule. And you know what the Bible says about that? All your righteousness are as filthy rags. All your good is as bad as my jacket with all my sinfulness placed on Jesus Christ. 
I can do no work to accomplish justification. It is by faith in what Jesus did. So if you're outside the camp, there's two ways to be outside of a camp this morning. There's one way in the sense of like, I just do not know if I believe and I'm outside of it just going, man, I don't know about this Jesus thing. You have to study. You just can't go, well, I just don't think because the world will give you enough reasons not to believe anything. Man, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to chase a rabbit. That stupid Christmas song that my kids used to make fun of about the man and woman kissing and all that stuff and don't go and everything, it blows my mind that the world now is becoming a moral, moral steward of something that happened years ago. It's like they don't watch TV, they don't listen to the radio, they don't listen to Howard Stern. All that stuff is fine. Are y'all with me on that? It's just crazy. But if a Christian does it, oh my goodness, you're being legalistic. But man, we, I mean, I almost want to do a series called 50 Shades of Jesus because people don't, people just don't get it. Don't twist that. but we live in an upside-down world. I just did Stranger Things on you. It's upside-down. It's dark. It's crazy. But when you stand at the cross and you look through the torn body of Jesus Christ, you are either going to be like the centurion and go, I, that is the Son of God, and your whole life is going to change, or you're going to go, nope, I'm going to be that other person on the cross that says, nope, see you later, I'm done. I don't believe enough. I don't have enough evidence. In Isaiah 53, it says this, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus is beginning to move, if you would think about it, from shame, all the shame of everything we placed upon him, to glory. The king is beginning to Take his throne. We sang about that. We're talking about that. He went from shame to glory. They took his body and wrapped it in linen. And he was dead. And many people walked away. But not Joseph of Arimathea. You go back to that original, the first verse up there. I want you to look, the very first, there it is. I want you to look here with me. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for what? If you are a spectator Christian, if you are into comfortable Christianity, if you are a Cheers Church member where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came, sound like an 80s rerun here today, don't I? I've gone 80s, 90s, and whatever. But Joseph of Arimathea, he wasn't one of those rich guys that didn't get it. Some people go that rich people won't get saved. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. He was respected. He had high office. 
and they cared about what he did, but he was looking for the kingdom of God. He wasn't just a spectator. He was a searcher. He was a seeker. He wasn't a seeker of like maybe just trying to find Jesus. He was looking for the kingdom. And Jesus kept saying to his disciples, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. My kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We must be kingdom people. We must not be outsiders. We must not be just sort of sitting out in our comfort zone. We need to be people who are looking for the kingdom of God. And it is around you, folks. It is at your neighbor's house. It is with a person on the street. It is with someone right beside you who might be crying at some point that you just go and you lay your hand on them and just go, I care about you. Let me pray with you. It might be in you loving your enemies. It might be in you praying for people you don't like. It might be with you turning off the news station. It might be with you turning off some of the external noise and seeking ye first the kingdom of, his, of God and his righteousness. And what does it say? And all these things shall be what? But our plate's full. Our plates are full. I don't think there are any fuller than Joseph of Arimathea. He was on a high council. I'm sure he had places to take care of, things to do. I'm sure he had family. But he was looking for the kingdom. What are you looking for this morning? I would almost just go, why are you here? You really need to ask yourself that question. You're not here to hear cell phones go off during the service. It's supposed to be funny. Huh? <laughs> Evidently it wasn't. Are you here to sing some Christmas carols that you sang 20, 30 years ago that make you feel good? Or are you here because you're seeking the kingdom? And you get so close to that cross that the grace which sounds pretty becomes brutal. And when he says to forgive your enemies, you go, ah. And you're called to take up his cross, you go, wow, I don't know about that. Why are you here? Can we be like Joseph Arimathea this morning? Who was seeking the kingdom of God. Who did not care what people thought about him. He was not an outlier. He wasn't Yoda, but he was close. He came in and he did what he could. He did not care about his business. He didn't care about the council. He didn't care about anything. He didn't care about what his family said. He had Jesus placed in his family tomb because he was looking for the kingdom of God. What's it going to cost you? What's it going to cost me? Why are we here? We sang a whole lot of why we're here this, this morning. It's so good. Folks, we have a week 
and a day to Christmas Eve. Some of you, when I say that, you're thinking Christmas presents needed to be wrapped, food needing to be made. But I want to say to you that maybe it means inviting some neighbors to the Christmas Eve service. Just blowing it out, just going, hey, come here. It's only going to be an like hour long. We keep it tight. We're coming here. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a time to sing and to proclaim for us. But I'm going to present the gospel, folks, on Christmas Eve. It's going to be as clear as I can about it. And I'm not, I'm not going to be in your face and ignorant. I'm just going to be clear the reason we're here. Are you looking for the kingdom? Or is your kingdom around a tree, the wrong tree? Where are you hanging your ornaments this morning? I think the centurion got it. Joseph of Arimathea got it. The thief beside him got it. I think to a degree Pontius Pilate got it. Simon, um, Cyrene got it. Later, the disciples got it. Jesus says, I offer it all to you. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the pleasure of the Lord. Y'all gonna correct me on that? <laughs> we should be pleasing to God. In the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Search for the kingdom this week. If you have to count the costs, count the costs. But know which tree it is that you bend and need to this morning.